Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. I think it's safe to say that few people have read the Hebrew Bible all the way through. Maybe you memorized a portion for your bar or bat mitzvah, or read parts of it in Sunday school or a college course. But the whole thing? Nah. Fewer people still have read it as a work of literature, treating every sentence as a work of literary style and craft. And yet fewer have read the Bible all the way through, gotten fed up with the English translations available, and decided to blaze ahead with their own. One such person is award-winning translator and literary critic Robert Alter, who between books of literary criticism on the modern novel has been translating the Hebrew Bible for over two decades. And last year, he finished it. All 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, which came in at three volumes, 3,500 pages, and 10 pounds, three ounces. In 1981, he published the massively influential book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. And now he's followed it up with an unofficial sequel, a manual of sorts, on the art of Bible translation. Robert Alter has spent a lifetime thinking of the Hebrew Bible as a work of literature. And he joins us in the studio to talk about his process. Thanks so much for talking to I'm me. Happy to be here. Um, honestly, I was a little relieved when I first started your book to know that you didn't immediately set out several decades ago to translate the entire Bible. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <laughs> that would seem superhuman. So set the stage. How did you end up spending decades translating Hebrew? Well, I began Genesis in the mid-1990s. Uh, as um, a kind of experiment, uh, was it possible to get a lot of the subtlety and the power uh, of the Hebrew style, the prose, the poetry, into the English language in a way that previous English versions had not done? And I secretly thought this is a dubious undertaking, that when I finish, if you consider the uh, tremendous differences in structure and in word meanings between the two languages, that it's going to be kind of grotesque. Uh, everybody will hate it, and I will hate it. 
Well, it turned out to be not that grotesque. Uh, it's, it's not perfect, and I say repeatedly in my book that no translation is more than an approximation uh, of a great work. Uh, but it, it was a better approximation than I had thought. It was well-received, so I thought I'd do one more book. And one more book led to a second and a third and a fourth. And all the while I kept saying, I'm not really going to translate the whole Hebrew Bible. And then maybe about four years ago, I would guess, I looked over my shoulder and there was almost two-thirds of the Hebrew Bible translated. So I said, hey, I can do this. And I dug in the the, the big challenge, both... Um, Intrinsically and in terms of quantity was uh, the prophets, and I did the prophets, and then there wasn't too much left. So that's how I did it. So, I mean, let's talk about your forebears, because part of um, the art of Bible translation is looking back at all the other translations. So I was really only familiar with a few, and I didn't realize quite the scope of Bible translation that's existed. Well, I, I, I don't know if I can give you a head count. <laughs> Well, roughly speaking, <clears throat> Bible translation from the original uh, began in the 16th century with William Tyndall, who I, I think was a translator of genius, but whose work was interrupted by the Inquisition who burned him at the stake for translating. So a couple of translations in, in the 16th century built on Tyndall. Uh, and then famously, the King James Version, which uh, appeared in, in 1611, drew a lot from him, I would say cribbed from him. And even uh, for books that he had not translated at all, they, um, they were really uh, guided by his precedent and his general strategies as a translator. So the King James Version is... For my money, the the only translation that's uh, readable is literature, and many things in it are great. There are a lot of faults too, uh, and I won't dwell on that. So after the Second World War, various denominational groups got together and and they said, "Okay, we now know a lot about biblical Hebrew, and we can really turn out a." a translation that is far more precise than any of the predecessors and is accessible to modern readers. And each one of these translations were disasters. Uh, they were disasters first because they were not as precise as they thought uh, and in all sorts of ways. Secondly, um, they tried to turn the Bible into something that sounded like a very modern text, uh, and they destroyed its beauty and its subtlety. And then a kind of imponderable uh, lack was that they, they seemed to have a shaky sense of idiomatic English, uh, and there are all kinds of howlers in these translations. So... What made the King James Bible a work of genius, whereas these fell short? I know you said it's flawed, but, I mean, it's influenced everyone from Hemingway to Whitman. Sure, sure, right. Well, I think two things. 
one is um, in the prose, uh, they followed the syntax and often the idioms of the Hebrew. And they never tried to improve on the Hebrew. Say, on the level of syntax, they gave literary English a new and powerful shape, one in which the prose unfolded in parallel clauses without syntactic uh, uh, complication. And that is often a very effective literary instrument in the Hebrew, and they replicated that. They did it not for literary reasons, but because they were believing Protestants, and they thought, well, if God put these words in this way, we better follow this order in these words. And then uh, there's a kind of eloquent simplicity in the narrative prose, which they replicated, so that, uh, say, in the flood story, we have, and the waters were on the face of the earth 40 days using the verb was. And then, and the ark went upon the, the face of the water. So all, I think there's something quite moving about that simplicity and all the modern versions gussy it up. They say the waters pounded down on the earth and the ark drifted and so forth. Okay, that, that's one reason why it's great. The the second reason, I think, has to do with uh, the fact that these learned clergymen, I think they were all clergymen, I mean, they were very learned, they knew Hebrew, of course, Greek, Latin, Arabic in some cases, Aramaic and so forth. Um, they were in touch with the literary culture of their age. It was an era before specialization of knowledge. And so you can see that Lancelot Andrews, who was the most influential of the King James translators, Bishop of London, and we have his sermons, and his sermons are splendid English prose. So they had a feel for the language, whereas the modern translators, they're burrowed into their graduate programs when they were being trained at Johns Hopkins and Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, and they don't seem to be reading anything else, and they have a rather poor sense of literary English. So that makes me wonder, is it sort of like a chicken and egg problem? Do we think the King James Bible is great because we've read it and known it for so long and thus it's informed our knowledge of English? Well, I think that reinforces uh, our sense of its greatness. But I would say that it's intrinsically great. Like if you read many of the Psalms in the King James Version, uh, they're great poetry, and it's not an accident that they influence Whitman, that they influence Emily Dickinson, and and so forth. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't mistakes and that there isn't a certain, uh, I think probably in many cases, unconscious Christian bias in their translation. Part of that, too, is influenced by their belief that it was the literal word of God. Oh, sure. And if God put it there, it had to be right. So do you feel like when you're translating the Hebrew Bible, you have a burden or responsibility to get it right since millions of people still believe it's the word of God? I do. Now, 
I have to say, uh, in all candor, that my motive was not really religious, but um, literary. Uh, but w what I found from many, many emails over the course of the two decades that these books were coming out, and especially now that that the the blockbuster has appeared, uh, that I, I get extremely enthusiastic responses from believing Christians, all kinds of believing Christians, not fundamentalists, but but otherwise, uh, and and even from clergymen who say that they, they will use my translation in their sermons and, uh, and so forth. Uh, so I, I think that there's a kind of hunger among believers to have an English version of Scripture that will bring them closer to the look and feel of the ancient language uh, and the mindset of the, the ancient Hebrew writers. Mm -hmm. Well, let's dig into a little bit of how you make that happen on okay. a sentence level. How do you feel like being a critic of the novel has informed your approach to now translating this very different format, a Bible that has many, many different prose and poetry and right. whatever sections. Well, uh, let me begin with a, a point of contact, be I think, between the Hebrew scripture and the novel. And then I'll go on to the differences. Uh, a long time ago, in, in that wonderful book, which I think is the, the greatest work of literary criticism written in the past century, Eric Auerbach's Mimesis. In his first chapter, there's an extended comparison between a passage from Homer and a passage from Genesis. And since he's going to take us all the way from those two ancient texts to Virginia Woolf at the end of the book, he's looking forward to the novel. And he sees, in a rather iconoclastic way for his time, that the true precursor to the novel in ancient literature is not Homer, but the Bible. Now, he did not take up the um, issue of dialogue. Uh, but I, I've gotten very interested in biblical dialogue. The great anticipation of novelistic dialogue in ancient literature, is dialogue in the Hebrew Bible. That is, because the writers were composing in writing, they weren't doing this oral formulaic uh, composition that the Homeric bard w was doing, and because they were writing prose, they had a flexibility. They, they, they could pull the language this way and that, and at times even deliberately distort it for uh, expressive purposes. So as a reader of novels and a teacher and critic of novels, I think I, I was uh, quite alerted to the fact that language in dialogue could reflect the character or even temperament of this speaker. And uh, so in translating dialogue from the Bible, I tried to get this across. And one way I, I would say is, is this. There are a few moments in biblical dialogue where 
for one reason or another, a um, a speaker will either speak gibberish or violate linguistic norms in some way. Now, all the, the existing translations don't show that. They figure it's the Bible. If it's the Bible, everything has to be clear and correct. But obviously, it, I mean... We who read Saul Bellow say know that that people when when they speak dialogue in a narrative don't necessarily try to be clear and correct. So that helped me. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about the differences? Well, the the differences are all over the place. Well, in the narrative prose, uh, I've come to be convinced that in addition to this use of parallel syntax that I mentioned earlier, that there was a conventional unspoken understanding that for writing a literary narrative, you used only a certain small vocabulary. The poetry has a much bigger vocabulary. For example, there's only one word to say light, like the the light coming through a window uh, in biblical narrative prose, whereas the the, uh, poems have equivalences of brilliance and dazzle and effulgence and so forth. Now, in in general, our novelistic narratives don't work that way. They use a, a rich vocabulary. But a few of them, inspired by the King James Version, I, I think, do pick up this technique. Hemingway is the most famous. Sometimes you can see it in Cormac McCarthy and, and a few others. So I tried to cultivate simplicity and not to use fancy words. Now, another thing which manifests itself in the sound of the sentences is that Biblical Hebrew is very compact. You can often say, I won't go into the technical explanation, but you can often say something with one word that takes three or four in English. And it doesn't have a lot of polysyllabic uh, words. So I tried to tamp down English, or to get rid of excess words, to avoid... I don't do this 100% of the time, but I would say a lot of the time, to avoid polysyllabic Latinate words. So, for example, um, at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah invades against the, the people of Judah and calls them people weighed down with crime, in my translation. Now, the existing translations following the King James say something like, people heavy with iniquity. And I hated iniquity. I hated the sound of it. It spoiled the line of the poem. It probably goes back to a Latin equivalent in the Vulgate. Obviously, the Bible was composed not by one person, but by many. It was kind of a team effort. It was. Um, So I wonder how much of that, too, has to do with many writers coming together um, and how you approach that as an individual translator? There are a lot of different writers. Uh, I think they did not work in a committee room together at all. 
that is, for example, in the the first four books uh, of uh, the five books of Moses, uh, scholarship since way back early in the nineteenth century has identified um, three different strands. Well, these guys worked independently. And then uh, a an editor or redactor then put these together, sometimes effectively, sometimes with road bumps. The other thing, of course, you have to keep in mind is that the Hebrew Bible, and in this regard, the Christian Bible is different than the New Testament because the New Testament was mostly composed in just a few decades by different people, whereas the Hebrew Bible is an anthology that reflects, I would say, if you go back to the oldest poem, probably the Song of Deborah in the Book of Judges, down to the latest book, which would be Daniel, it's almost a thousand years of literary activity. So there are different schools and trends and and writers, and of course the language itself changes as time passes. Right. Well, and that makes the task of translating ancient Hebrew as it evolves so much different from translating a more static language. Oh, sure. Or even an anthology that was written more like in a, a decade. So what are the parallels, do you think, between translating the Hebrew and translating modern work? Well... I think there are lots of parallels. There are certain common denominators uh, of, of literary translation. So maybe the, the most basic one is this. Let's say you're translating a novel by Flaubert or you're translating Genesis. So you see something in the Hebrew or the French that is a brilliant move by the writer. It's a subtle positioning of syntax, or, or it's a, a devastatingly effective word choice. And uh, that's just as Flaubert, say, was famously in pursuit as he revised and revised of le mot juste, you know, the exact right word. I think that the biblical writers were. So then as a translator, you look at that and you say, how can I get something like that into English? And at times you will sacrifice one thing that you see in the text, whether it's a novel or the Bible, in order to achieve something else that seems to, to you to be more salient in the original. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that seemed especially apparent when it comes to something like puns. Right, of right, which right. I did not realize there were many in the Bible. Oh yes, yes. actually, quite a funny book. Yeah, <laughs> not all the the puns are funny, but <laughs> well, let's see. One line that, that I was kind of happy with um, Isaiah, remarkable poet, has a, a a little trick that advances his agenda of castigation. He will take a word that has a positive meaning and juxtapose it with a word that has an antithetical meaning in order to 
demonstrate through sound, to dramatize through sound, the perversion of values in the kingdom of Judah. So I'll just do a half line. There's a half line in Isaiah, which goes like that. And he, that he is God, he, he hoped for justice. And the word for justice is mishpat, mishpat. And look, um, a blight. And the word for a blight is mispach. So you have justice, mishpat, flipped to mispach, a blight. So I thought that, that you had to do that in English, or, or, or you blunted the sharp point uh, of Isaiah's prophecy. So I came up with, he hoped for justice, and look, jaundice. Now, jaundice is a kind of blight, so I think it works. Yeah, that's so cool. Every time I read a new translation or talk to a translator, read anything about the art of it, I'm like, man, I must have missed so much reading X, Mm -hmm. Y, or Z in translation. Right. Um, So what do you want people to get out of your book reading it? I mean, there's the general reader who maybe gets a little extra kick out of learning about these puns or these processes, but what about translators reading your book? Oh, translators reading my book. Well, um, I I think any translator of a a text that exhibits a a high degree of literary artifice has to take that artifice very seriously. He or she can't say, well, the, the main thing is to get the meaning of the words. That's exactly what the modern scholarly translators of the Bible have done, and they made a mess of it. I would also say uh, if you come across things that are strange in the original, and this could be true in a modern novel too, before you regularize them, you have to ask yourself, is there some particular purpose in the strangeness? And if there, if I think there is, uh, can I preserve that in English even if some readers will scratch their heads? Yeah, yeah. So one last question for you. Sure. Um, I've read... Henry James is the art of the novel, and there's yeah. a couple others. As have I. <laughs> oh, I should hope so. Um, and there's a lot of the art ofs floating around that seem to be kind of both manuals and manifestos for whatever they're explaining. Is that how you see your book, as a manifesto and a manual? Um, yeah, it's certainly a manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think... It's a manual in the following way. This is not just for translators, but for readers of the Bible. I set out to excoriate what I thought were the crimes against the original and to propose a series of constructive suggestions of how you could go about avoiding becoming a criminal translator, okay? But um, as I proceeded, I realized that I was writing 
a book that quite surprisingly, but maybe not so surprisingly, doesn't exist, which is a concise introduction to the major features of Hebrew style in the Bible. Now, why doesn't that exist? Uh, you would think any primer of biblical literature should include uh, at least a chapter uh, on that, but it's nothing that's paid attention to when people are trained to become biblical scholars. Now, there are many things you have to know in order to get a good handle on the Bible, biblical grammar, other ancient Near Eastern languages. And I, I don't know as many. I, I mean, I, I read Aramaic okay, and I can get along in uh, Ugaritic. I've never studied Akkadian or, or Sumerian. Uh, and, of course, the, they also look at archaeology, ancient Near Eastern history, uh, and so forth. All these things are important. What you will never do is take a course in, let's say, prose style in, in uh, the Hebrew Bible or narrative conventions in, in the Hebrew Bible, or I would even say the formal structure of biblical poetry. So that means that uh, it would not occur to anybody who's in the guild of, of biblical scholars to sit down and write a book on style in the Hebrew Bible. They had 3,000 years. You think they could have gotten yeah. it? <laughs> well, they were asking different questions. L l let me tell you something. That, uh, as you say, th there's been 2,000 years of writing uh, on the, the, the Bible uh, and thousands of books. The, the, the shelves in the libraries are groaning under their weight. But I think this is probably true in, in any intellectual discipline. They ask one set of questions, and they don't ask another. If that's not a humbling interview, I don't know what is. We have links to where you can find all of Robert Alter's monumental works, from the art of Bible translation to his newly published Hebrew Bible. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.